Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, we offer the first of two special episodes featuring the award-winning author of 13 books, David Marinus. His latest book, Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe, is scheduled to be published by Simon & Schuster in August of this year. David Marinus is a New York Times bestseller and associate editor at The Washington Post. He's earned two Pulitzer Prizes and a host of additional book honors. Marinus was interviewed online via Zoom on October 13, 2021, by fellow biographer and bio member John, better known as Jack Farrell. David, how are you, my friend? I've been at this desk all day, but other than that, I'm great. <laughs> About to come out with a biography of Jim Thorpe. This is your 13th book, rather? Yes. And what made you choose this forgotten American sports hero? Well, I'm not sure he's forgotten, but he's uh, definitely in the past. You know, he'd been sort of in the back of my mind for quite a while. Actually, in 2003, I was traveling around the country promoting my book, uh, They Marched into Sunlight, the Vietnam book. And I was in Denver at the Denver Press Club. And a gentleman who was there named Norbert Hill, who's an Oneida Indian from Wisconsin, a great guy and writer, came up to me and said, David, I've got your next book. It's got to be Jim Thorpe. And it was a seed that was planted that I didn't even know was growing inside me since 2003. But Carlisle, the famous Pop Warner, if any of you know about Pop Warner football, that was his coach at Carlisle. Warner knew exactly what Thorpe was doing when he was playing minor league baseball in the Eastern Carolina League for two summers because hundreds of college players were doing it, but under aliases, and Jim Thorpe played under his own name. Anyway, when the question was raised about whether he'd played, Pop Warner lied and said he knew nothing about it, as did James E. Sullivan, who was the head of the AAU during that era, was also a member of the Carlisle Indian School Board of Advisors for the Athletic Department. No way he didn't know about it either. So they were all sort of throwing Jim Thorpe under the bus when they knew exactly what was going on. Was part of the reason that he was treated that way because he was an Indian? Absolutely. You know, in defense of Warner, they'd say Warner, a Cornell man. You know, there was all of this sort of condescension about Indians in the Indian School. Did you, uh, you grew up in the Midwest, yes. spent part of your time in Wisconsin. Did you know Indians in Wisconsin as you grew up? Yes. I mean, I, I didn't, my high school was uh, pathetic. Madison West High School is a great school, but it was not diverse at all. So I didn't have any Indian friends growing up, but I certainly knew about the Indians. And especially when I was in college at the University of Wisconsin and the American Indian movement was starting. I definitely knew all about that and knew some of those leaders. And Ada Deer was a great Wisconsin activist who was a friend of my family, so I did know her. And so tell us a little bit about childhood and how you got to be a writer. Did you grow up in a house full of books? 
I did. I was very lucky. Um, my father was a newspaper man and editor of the Capital Times in Madison. My mother was a book editor. I was the dumb kid in the family. My older brother and sister were both scholars, became professors. My younger sister was a classical pianist. And I was the dumb kid, the dumb jock who luckily loved to write and followed my dad into newspapers. It was the one thing I was good at and could do from a pretty early age. David, you've written a marvelous memoir of your family called A Good American Family um, about your dad's experience with the blacklist during the McCarthy era. Yeah. Uh, was this something that you were aware of uh, all your life? How did you eventually come to write this uh, family story at the end of a dozen books? You know, it was uh, a shadow sort of in the background of our family's life by the time I became sort of politically conscious or just plain conscious, you know, at age seven or eight. Um, my father had survived the McCarthy era and moved on toward a very successful career. And he didn't talk about the past much. It wasn't that he was embarrassed about his past, but he just wanted to look toward the future. And so it was not really discussed directly in our family. There were certainly political discussions about McCarthy about Richard Nixon, your uh, subject, um, and his role in the McCarthy era. And there was no shortage of political discussion, but my father's actual, uh, you know, what happened to him was not something that we talked about much at all. And so I became more interested in it as an adult. Um, at one point in the early 80s, I thought about writing a novel about one small part of that story, but I was terrible at it and gave that up. <laughs> uh, but then I knew I couldn't write about it until my parents were gone because I love both my parents and my father didn't really want to talk about it. And so I wasn't going to, to uh, hurt him in the final years of his life. But what happened, uh, Jack, which you might appreciate is that I'd written these biographies about Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and Lombardi and Clemente. And in every case, there was a mythology built up by them and by the people around them that I had to unwind. Um, and particularly in the case of Obama, he wrote a brilliant memoir, Dreams from My Father. But it's a memoir. It's not real biography. And so there were so many cases when I was doing my book about him where I discovered that he just repeated a story that his mother or some relative had told him about what happened in his family. And, you know, most people don't have a biographer going back to find out what's really going on. So for instance, in his book, he talks about how his mother um, was a fascinating woman who first married a Kenyan and then an Indonesian man. And in his book, Barack talks about how the story was that his Indonesian step-grandfather had died nobly fighting against the Dutch in the Indonesian War of Independence. And I discovered that, in fact, he died of a heart attack falling off the ottoman in his living room, changing the drapes, you know. <laughs> but of course, there's no way that Obama would know that unless he went back and really did a biography, uh, rather than just repeating the stories. So as I was telling that story about the president, I thought, you know, most people do not have a biographer going back, but everybody has a mythology in their family. And I do too. And I should go back and find out what really happened in my family. And that was the real spark that drove my book. 
And you had to do a lot of digging. I did. I, I tried to approach it the same way I would any other book. So I, you know, I went to 11 archives, uh, starting with the National Archives, which had all of the files of the House Un-American Activities Committee, before which my father was called in 1952 and fired from his job at the Detroit Times. And all of those files, as you know, were opened up over the last uh, 10 years. And so there was, a, there was actually a folder on my father, Elliot Marinus, with the statement that he wanted to give to the committee, but was prevented from delivering by the chairman of the committee. Yeah. Uh, there's a wonderful part of the book where you describe the typing of that statement and try to read into it. Well, first of all, just by talking about your father using that typewriter, um, but also trying to read into it how exactly the way the keys were struck uh, indication of what your father's feelings were at the time. Well, we're both old enough to have actually used typewriters. <laughs> and, you know, especially a, an old newspaper and a man like my dad, who was a hunt and peck typist, you know, he was pounding on the keys and, and two or three would go up at a time and stick. And once in a while, they would, they would jump a half space on the page. And when I was reading his statement, I saw him, you know, Xing out things and the S in statement, statement of Elliot Marinus, the S went up a half space. That was such a small detail that had such an enormous emotional impact on me because for the first time seeing that, I could start to feel what it must have been like for my dad during that moment when he was in the crucible, the most difficult moment of his life. Yeah. And as you know, as a biographer, there are little things like that that you find in the archives somewhere that have this enormous uh, resonance to them um, that goes beyond the words that are there. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, your brother, I believe, said to you a universal question for biographers, which is, how can you know what they were feeling? Yeah. Is it uh, different for your, with your folks than it is when you're doing it about Vince Lombardi addressing that question? Well, no, it's a, it's a valid question that, that every biographer um, knows that they don't have a good answer to, because no matter how many letters you can find that they've written, um, no matter how many people you can interview, if it's someone who's still alive or in the current uh, era, you still can't fully know what's going on inside someone's head. Because I've always believed just human nature 95% of what someone's thinking is never articulated anywhere but in their own head. And yep. so you just have to accept that. But I am a researcher. I'm a trained journalist to go out and find what I can of the facts and the information that's out there. And so that's the best I can do. And with my empathetic skills, which I think I have, I can find more meaning in that than just the facts themselves. Yeah. and. Um... You came to the Washington Post right after Watergate, am I correct? Yeah, I was at the Trenton Times right after Watergate, which was just bought by the Washington Post. So there was sort of oh, that. somewhere with this, just to be patient with it. But uh, was, was Carl Bernstein still there? And did you talk with him about this experience that you shared? Because I, oh. I believe that his parents were also part of the blacklist. He was not there. He'd left already. Woodward was there. Woodward was one of my first uh, bosses and then colleague. I certainly talked to Carl later about it, but not during that era at all. But I know that when Carl wrote his book, his parents were still alive. And it caused a pretty difficult rupture between Carl and his father. 
So that was a lesson that, you know, I didn't want to go through that. Yeah. I had to wait until my parents were gone. Did you ever think, or did he ever think dealing with Nixon or you dealing with someone like Clinton in the Clinton White House, that at some point somebody would knock on the door and say, hey, we know this stuff about your family. And if you don't want it to come out, you better um, watch what you say about Bill or Barack or whatever. You know, that never happened, but it actually didn't happen until about 2015. I'd already started this book and there was, uh, you know, there are these white right wing sort of media watchdog groups. And one of them wrote about how I was covering up my father's story. Yeah, right when I was actually reporting <laughs> it, right? So I'm not covering up anything. I'm trying to find out what really happened. But I never, I wonder about how my father would have worried about that while he was alive. Ah. Uh, if it had come out, well, you know, he was the editor of the Capital Times in Madison. Right. And no one really went after him during that period that I could find. Yeah. But he must have carried that fear with him. It's more the stuff of Hollywood rather than reality, maybe. Maybe so. I mean, I, but I, since Clinton, I've obviously been a target for various right-wing groups. And it doesn't bother me. I just, you know, I don't respond to them unless there's a valid reason to. I just try to ignore it. Yeah. Well, our listeners may not be journalists and don't know that usually a profile was a, a one long piece, but you were given the space or came back and argued for the space and wrote this amazing series of articles delving into Clinton's background, into his education that eventually became first in his class, which was the defining biography of Bill Clinton. Was it you going back? What, did you have a great editor who said, who conceived that we were going we're gonna to actually write a biography in the pages of the Washington Post? Well, first of all, the stories weren't the basis of the book. They inspired the book. When I started the book, I started completely from scratch. But um, no, it was my idea. I was then the Southwest Bureau Chief for the Washington Post based in Austin, Texas. Arkansas was part of my territory, although, although I didn't go up there much because there were so many great stories in Texas and Louisiana. <laughs> Arkansas was kind of the poor sister of my coverage. But in any case, I knew about young Bill Clinton and had been up there a few times to write about him and the Democratic Party in Arkansas and a few other stories. But I think it was early in 1991 that I was watching a, a C-SPAN, a debate of the first candidates for president. And it just in that debate, I just thought, well, this is a guy who's figured it out. Not figured out all the right things, but figured out how a Democrat could win an election. You know, after all of these, these decades of, of sort of defensive losing and defensiveness on the part of Democrats, he figured out how to co-opt some Republican issues and, and move into a new place. And so I, I wrote a memo to Bob Kaiser, who was the national editor, and said, I want to spend the next year just writing about Bill Clinton and figure him out in a way so that by the time I'm done, the readers of the Washington Post will understand this guy who's going to be the next president of the United States. They let me do it. <laughs> there was one small period where Ross Perot sort of had this bubble <laughs> and they tried to take me off Clinton to do Perot because he was from Texas. And I went up there and did one story without my heart in it. <laughs> and uh, then went back to Clinton. Yeah. I just had a sense. I, I've had that a couple of times in my career. Um, when I first got to the Washington Post, 
there was a governor's race in Maryland and um, there were, you know, uh, Blair Lee and um, Ted Venetoulis. There were several candidates. And I, early on, I said, the guy who's going to win is Harry Hughes. And so I basically had that same process with Harry Hughes and he did win that election in 78. Yeah. So Bill Clinton was the first biographical subject. Yeah, I was 43 years old. I covered him for the Washington Post that year. I woke up in a sort of a shabby motel room on the outskirts of Little Rock the morning after the election at five in the morning and said, I've got to write this book. I know him better than anyone else. Um, There's enough in it that interests me, a way to write about not just Bill Clinton and his wife, Hillary, but about my generation, the post-war baby boom generation. So I that later that morning, I called Rafe Segalen, who is an agent, and said, this is the book I want to do. And he bought into it, and we went from there. Um, one thing about Clinton and Obama and Tip O'Neill <laughs> and uh, people like Ken Burns and uh, Robert Caro himself is that all of them lost parents, either orphans or lost to parents um, young in life. And I found when I did Tip O'Neill that a great number of the Boston politicians seemed to be filling a yearning in their life, the missing of, of one parent by reaching out to a crowd. Yep. So I always ask, I try to ask people who do biographies of people who reach out to the crowd, whether or not that's a, a valid shorthand description of motivation of these kind of folks. I think it often is. I, I would say that there's a that Bill Clinton and Barack Obama are diametrically different in that sense. But I I believe that, yes. I mean, here's the thing about writing political biographies. It's true that nobody should be judged by things they did when they were kids or even up to a certain point, you know, when they reach maturity or reach their political lives. But yet, those childhood days are essential to understanding who they are. So I always try to differentiate between holding them responsible for what they did and understanding why they did what they do. And to understand why they do what they do and to understand that you have to understand the forces that shape them, which include their parents or lack of parents. It doesn't have to be that they lost a parent. There also be an alcoholic parent, like with Ronald Reagan or many others. Or Bill Clinton dealt with alcoholic stepfathers. So did Barack Obama. Even Barack Obama's grandmother, who was really the rock of his life. She struggled with alcoholism too. But the way I would differentiate Obama and Clinton, even though they both were shaped by that experience, is that Bill Clinton sort of became the master of moving on to the next day, waking up and forgiving himself and everybody else and just dealing with the next day and blocking things out, not really dealing at any deep level with the dysfunctions of his family or himself, but forgiving it all and moving on to the next one and you know, learning how to, to survive in that way. Barack Obama, dealing with the same dysfunction, you know, a father who wasn't around, um, alcoholism in the family, both of them coming out of nowhere, basically, Arkansas and Hawaii. Barack Obama had the added difficulty of who am I? because his mother was white and his father was Kenyan. But he dealt with it in a completely different way from Clinton, rather than just moving on and looking to the next thing. 
He spent many years of his young adulthood, from about ages 17 to 24, trying to figure himself out. And who am I and why am I? And what can I do about that? And I think that he, to a large degree, developed what I would call an integrated personality because of that, Whether whereas Clinton was many personalities. But the interesting thing is that both of those evolutions led to the same place. In other words, Clinton was able to get where he wanted to go because he learned how to survive almost anything. Barack Obama was able to get there because he had resolved a lot of things. Then they get to the White House and both of those things get them into trouble. Bill Clinton is constantly getting in trouble because he hasn't resolved a lot. Obama is being criticized because he's too cool and too reserved and doesn't need people as much as Bill Clinton. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I mean, I would say that of the two, Clinton fits the mold that you were talking about a little more than Obama, but they both came out of the same dysfunction. Yeah. Now, politicians and uh, movie stars are famous for erecting a, a fake image. In fact, one of your colleagues, Meg Greenfield, once wrote this amazing piece about how uh, Washington hollows out your soul. Um, you replace your actual person with a with a facade, and at some point, you even lose the ability to tell which is the facade and which is really you. First of all, do you think that's true? And if so, how do you pierce that false front that celebrities erect? Well, I agree completely with that, and it's not just the false front that they erect but the walls that are between you and them, right? I mean, that's true in sports now too, but, but you know, to deal with a president, you've got all these people between you and the president who are trying to create this image that isn't a reality. Luckily, as biographers, Jack, we don't have to deal with those people as much, right? <laughs> when you go back into their childhoods and their early years, there's less of that BS around and you can get closer to the reality. That's one of the reasons I've always been more interested in the forces that shape someone than in the present moment. The present moment is so transitory, whereas the other stuff can last and explain someone much better. But, you know, piercing through that facade, the way I've tried to do it is to really understand that person from the beginning. And I think that helps a lot. It's amazing to consider that uh, before, I guess, the beginning of the 20th century and, and Freud and the start of... Uh psychiatry and uh, psychoanalysis, that childhood was considered by the Victorians and before that as a time of bliss and something that you didn't have to worry about putting into a biography because nothing really counted until the person leapt onto your page fully formed at the age of, right. of 21. And now uh, the formation of a character is, is the first thing that we, at least I try to understand. Um, do you feel humility or, or a limit to how much you can use Freudian theory or other psychological theories oh, in analyzing somebody? I try not to um, delve into the psychological theories, but, but I think there are ways to illuminate the forces that shape someone that the reader can draw their own conclusions about. You know, there, there's always the danger of imposing your own psychological theories on someone else. And one of the things I've tried to do in all of my writing is to um, use my sensibility, but take my biases out of it as much as possible, just through my curiosity. I think curiosity can save you, you know, in terms of misshaping a story or a book, because 
my curiosity takes me to places I'm not expecting. And I try to go into each book without any preconceptions. That's not totally possible, but to the degree that it is, I try to do it. Speaking with fellow biographer and bio member Jack Farrell, that was award-winning journalist David Marinus. His latest book, Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe, is scheduled to be published by Simon & Schuster in August of this year. This interview was recorded online via Zoom on October 13, 2021. And the second part of this fascinating conversation will be featured next week. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day.